Well, good morning. Glad to see you. Glad to see you, uh, those who are watching online. And I'm also glad to see that there's some of you still left after all those killed children just went uh, downstairs. I'm sorry. It's not, maybe you might not consider this a Christmas party up here, but let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. It's page 808 in a blue pew Bible. It looks like this. That should be in the row in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to follow along there. As we now, in our final Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday, uh, we continue our series, which has revolved around the unexpected aspects of Jesus' birth, uh, specifically in chapters Matthew 1 and 2. You know, our series has really been an exposition of these two chapters and trying to talk about, think about how in a season that is filled with so many traditions in our families, in our churches, in our culture, that we have very much come to expect year after year after year, uh, for better and sometimes for worse, um, how we can lose sight of the fact of just how unexpected that first Christmas was. And so this morning, we are going to follow that theme. And if you were here with us in week one, week one, we looked at the genealogy, which is the way that Matthew begins his gospel. And it's a passage with just a whole bunch of names. And it's one that I said at the time that's often kind of the passage we skim over, that gets skimmed over. Well, the one we're going to read today is a passage that often just gets skipped over altogether. Uh, because when we think about the biblical Christmas story, uh, isn't it true for you? I feel like it often is for me that it ends with the wise men, right? That, that, that the wise men came after the shepherds came. Yet the shepherds came first and then the wise men. They, uh, as we saw last week, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They gave him three gifts. Uh, they did not go back to Herod because they were warned in a dream of his intentions. Uh, they pulled out their first century ways app and they found an alternative route back east. Christmas story is over. That's awesome, uplifting. Christ is born. Now let's eat. Let's open presents of our own. But in Matthew, the story continues and it takes in our eyes, an unexpected turn. It takes a pretty dark turn. A turn, once we dig into it, my hope and prayer is that it will make us both weep and rejoice. So with that said, if you have your Bible, you can open to Matthew 2. We're going to read verses 13 to 23. Now when they, they being the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. 
And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be a Nazarene. Indeed, when we think about the biblical Christmas story, we rarely think about suffering. But we spoke about a couple weeks ago that, um, that quote that Advent always begins in the dark. And there are aspects of the Christmas story, the biblical story, that has some real darkness to it, to the point where if you feel in this Christmas season, whether it's specific to this year or in general around the holidays, that darkness of the soul, that sense of weight, that perhaps you were closer to the original experience of Advent than those who maybe are rejoicing. But this passage has both weeping and rejoicing. And, and so as I was thinking about this, I think there's two wrong ways to view this passage. Uh, first is to kind of gloss over and be desensitized to the aspects of real suffering that was endured in order to kind of rush to the spiritual meaning. And then second, the other wrong way would be to only dwell on the real suffering in this passage and then never see God's sovereign hand in the midst of it. But the intention of this passage, the intention of the author, uh, both the human author, Matthew, the divine author, the Holy Spirit, they want us to see both. And so I want us, Grace Church, on this fourth Sunday of Advent, days away from Christmas, I want us to see both. And starting with the depth of suffering in these verses. You know, nobody has uh, ever uh, described me as being overly emotional. But I found, I don't know about you, but I'm, you know, when I'm preparing for a passage, I'm always reading it, I'm always reading it, I'm reading it out loud, I'm reading it in my head. And I kept reading this passage and just getting that same lump in my throat. It's to the point where I would like practice more and more so that I can kind of get through this sermon. But like the, the emotion, for whatever reason, in this passage, in this time of year, is heavy. And so we need to, I think, sit in the midst of that heaviness because a lot of it, which we'll see, is, is still more, very much relevant today, and probably more so than we initially think, of the elements of suffering. Starting with and beginning with the suffering endured by Joseph and Mary. So the reality is we need to kind of strip away the over-romanticized aspects of the birth of Christ. The over-romanticized aspects of that journey to Bethlehem, and we need to talk reality. Um, you cannot have, they could not, rather, have the child in their hometown. We know this from the Gospel of Luke, where I imagine they would have had some more support, maybe some more experience. Maybe Mary has her own mother or cousin or somebody to kind of help her walk through this. But the reality is they had to go to Bethlehem because a government decree came down that they needed to be registered for a census throughout the empire. Bethlehem was 70 miles from their hometown. We know that Mary gave birth in Bethlehem. Now, we're not told how pregnant was Mary for this 70-mile trip. We're not told explicitly, but I think she was pretty pregnant. Since Luke again tells us there was no room for them in the inn, implies that she went into labor soon after they arrived. So I think it is a safe assumption to make that she made a 70-mile trek while nine months pregnant. I was afraid to ask Rochelle to go up a flight of stairs when she was nine months pregnant. 
right? Like, like the thing about breaking that news, like we're, we're going 70 miles. And then they give birth in a stable and they begin now life with a newborn in a stable. Now, I'm all for the song that we sang this morning, Away in a Manger. But that made it look pretty awesome for them, having a baby in a manger, of how peaceful it was. I doubt it was peaceful. It is hard to have a baby. It's hard to live life with a newborn. You heard Pastor Joe up here. Um, I think at Grace Church, within the last two months, there's been five babies born. And, and so I, I'll often kind of text in and just kind of see kind of how they're doing. And, and, and like across the board, it's like, it's like, man, this is awesome, such a blessing. And I am so tired. <laughs> like, 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 man, life of the newborn, like that's just like, that is chaos. And like the days are long. Like you get sleep two hours at a time. And like, and, and sometimes people are afraid to admit like it's really hard. Like, like it's so, man, we're so grateful. But oh my gosh, it is hard. And with that, you know that people are coming to visit this manger. Uh, we again know from Luke's account that the shepherds were there first. They were probably there pretty quick because the angel said, born this day is the Savior. It says in that passage that they saw the baby in the manger. So they were there really soon after, whether or not Mary maybe wanted them there. And then it says that the wise men, which we saw last week, went and saw the child in the house with his mother. So assuming that you're either from several weeks and they transitioned to a home or uh, a lot of commentators, which we'll see why in a moment, think that he could have been upwards of two years old by the time the wise men went and saw him. But then when the wise men leave, Joseph is told in a dream, that's the theme of this passage, the Lord keeps speaking to him in dreams, to rise and take the child and his mother to Egypt and basically stay there until further notice. Because the king of this region wants to find him, wants to destroy him. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Put yourself in Mary's shoes there. Like, this isn't like, hey, heads up, this is coming. You got a couple weeks, get your things together, plan the route, talk to some people in Egypt ahead of time, and then go there. No, the passage said, notice when they left? By night. Like, Joseph got this dream, wakes up wakes up Mary, maybe even wakes up a sleeping baby, which you should never do, and then says, we're going again. By night, um, Egypt, the border from Bethlehem, was another 75 to 100 miles. So Mary's not pregnant anymore, but they have either a newborn or a toddler, and you can debate which is harder, to travel while pregnant or to travel with a newborn or a toddler, all right? I won't enter into that. Women, you can decide and tell us what you think would be would harder, but either way, neither is easy. It's unexpected that Jesus, the newborn king, not only that he's born in a stable, but now he's a refugee. And not only having to go, but going knowing there's somebody behind you wanting to kill you. Wanting to kill your baby boy. So you have new parents, first-time parents. You know the shock to their system there. Trying to keep him safe. And they show up at this border. No plan. No belongings. Do we think about that? I wonder how they were received in Egypt. I wonder if the people of Egypt engaged in some debate as to whether or not they should be let in. 
I wonder if they debated their human dignity, this family at the border with no plan, no belongings. Did the people in Egypt see them as a threat? Do they ask amongst themselves, do they really need to come? How dangerous was it really for them in Bethlehem? We're given no details about their time in Egypt, how long or what it was like, but we know it was not easy. Next aspect of suffering in this passage is the unexpected suffering of these families in Bethlehem. So Matthew kind of chronicles the story for us. King Herod was furious, we're told, when he realized that the wise men did not do what he wanted them to do, to report back to him in Jerusalem and report on what they had found in Bethlehem. So he was enraged, but he was prepared. Do you remember last week? We saw him ask the wise men the question, hey, uh, when was it exactly you saw that star in the sky? When did that appear to you? Getting a timeline in his own mind. And based on that timeline, he orders all boys aged two and under in Bethlehem to be killed. As I said last week, Jerusalem was only six miles from Bethlehem, and this order horrifically could have been made by King Herod at lunchtime, and all those boys could have been done and dead by dinner. The population of Bethlehem was thought to be around a thousand people at the time, so with those estimates that there were likely anywhere from 10 to 20 families that had a son in that age bracket. And, and, and this is where, one of the reasons I think we, we skip over this, when we talk about the fact that there's a virgin birth and a star was in the sky led them to this place, that that's not fairy tale, that that's real, and we say that for the purpose of like, that is real, and there's things to rejoice about Christmas. Well, this is kind of the other side of that, that this is real, this is not a fairy tale. Little boys were murdered. Upwards of 20 families had their hearts broken. That, that, that's hard for me to think about. A, a, admittedly, it, it, it hit differently even after becoming a father myself. Um, so our youngest, we have twins who just turned three a couple weeks ago. The thought of anywhere in the last two plus years of living in a world where someone from the government could come show up at our home, and take Graham's life? Like, I want to know how many moms and dads got killed in this too. Because I'm not a tough guy. No one really described me as a tough guy. be honest with you, never been in a fight in my life. Don't know how I would do. I'm not bombastic. But if you're coming to take my boy, like, I'm not just standing by. And letting that happen? Like, you're, you're, you're taking me too? And, and you probably will take me because I've never been in a fight in my life. But I'm not just letting that go. I want to know how many moms and dads got taken in this genocide too. It's the senseless tragedy. This is the very kind of thing that happens that causes people to have real questions about the goodness of God. 
Why? This past week was the ninth anniversary of the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. At the time, I was working in finance in the city. Rashawn and I had been married less than a year, no children. But I remember following the news alerts through that day while at work, like I imagine much of you did. And I just, if I just think back to that nine years ago, I was so sad. Like, it's one of the saddest days I can remember that, again, there was kind of this lump in my throat the whole day and the days to follow, and I had this kind of internal dialogue and wrestling with myself. Like, I, I don't want to see any more coverage about this. I just want to, like, stop and, like, look away. But then wrestling with myself, like, I can't look away. Like, like real families have been impacted here. It's a couple hours from here. Like, I, like I, not that I owe it to anybody, but I feel like I had to kind of engage, but then I didn't want to engage and now, like, it is just even hits different thinking about it when that date comes every year. Like, walking my first grader to school every morning and kissing him and telling him I love him. And welcome walking to school. Like, are you kidding me? Like, suffering is hard. And, and, and this passage is hard, and, and when it's kids that suffer, like, it puts the dark into darkness. And it should enrage us in some ways, and we, we should lament whenever it happens. And, and again, I'm not trying to stir up controversy here, but this should, we should lament when this happens, both with the born and the unborn. The, the lack of justice that they get. And because people read this story, they, they see the coverage of what happens at Sandy Hook, and you know, a dozen babies and toddlers being killed, and, and, and we're angry about that, and, and yet we do live in a country that endorses the abortion of over 600,000 unborn babies a year. That, that before Jesus was a refugee in Egypt, he was an unborn baby in the womb. And the first one to recognize him as an unborn king of the Jews was another unborn baby, his cousin John, who leapt in his mother's stomach when he saw him. And I just want to be honest, we live in a country where this gets really weird for us. Because the, the, the so-called left cares about the refugee, and, 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 and the so-called right cares about the unborn. And you know what? As Christians, can we care for both? Can we stop worrying about where that might align us? And, and, and both sides will say, listen, it's more complex than that. You're oversimplifying this, and you have to consider this, and immigration, and national security, and you have to uh, consider the, the, the state of the mother, and the world that baby's being born into, and, and, and yes, let's do that. Let's enter in and have those conversations, and let's be nuanced in good faith, but can we have a baseline, foundational desire to advocate for the most vulnerable in both situations, for both the refugee and the unborn? I want to do both. And it's tiring living in a world where we feel like I have to choose one because I'm fearful of how it might make me look if I advocate for one and not the other to the same degree. We cannot gloss over the suffering in this passage, lament the real brokenness is all around, and realize this is a Christmas passage. And weep where we're called to weep. And, and then the last aspect is the unexpected suffering of, of Jesus. Uh, so, so we're told that they return from Egypt uh, back to the homeland because Herod dies. 
And this is where we can locate Jesus' birth historically in what we consider 4 to 6 B.C. Because Herod died in 4 B.C. So either, again, he was a baby when this happened, or he could have been upwards of two years old, which is why we locate his birth anywhere from 4 to 6 B.C. But Joseph, in these series of dreams, is told to rise and come home, come home with the child and his mother. But then in another dream, says you can't go back to Bethlehem. Because Herod's son is in power, and he's not much better than his daddy. So he decided to go from Judea, which is the southern region where Jerusalem was, to the northern region of Galilee, and settle in the town of Nazareth. Why is this suffering? Well, as we'll see a little bit later in the sermon, this is a town that was looked down upon amongst the Jews. To be a Nazarene was to be an outcast. It was to be a nobody from nowhere. And this is where the king of the Jews would be raised. Knowing in the back of their mind, maybe in the back of Jesus' mind growing up, what the story of his upbringing included. Knowing that the powerful government in the region wants you dead. I'm not sure what it would feel like to be raised in that kind of environment, but imagine it could not be easy. This is unexpected suffering. This is lamenting the darkness and weeping over the grief of loss that is experienced. It's all here in Matthew 2. But it doesn't stop there. Just like we can't just kind of gloss over those things and just rush to the spiritual meaning, so we need to ensure that in our own hearts we keep seeing this through. We keep seeing this passage through to understand God's sovereign hand upon it. As I read the passage, every step along the way, Matthew tells us that each of these kind of aspects of suffering fulfilled what the Lord had spoken. This idea of fulfillment that that is from the Old Testament and then is now fulfilled through the birth and now life of Jesus. And so all the while, in the midst of weeping, Matthew is saying, but God's got this. In the midst of tears, he's saying he has a plan that nothing is wasted, that all things work to accomplish his purposes, even and especially the hard things. And so I want to briefly show how each of those three fulfillments will lead our weeping to rejoicing. Not cancel it out, but see us do both. Number one, God will deliver his people from bondage. First thing this passage tells us is that God will deliver his people from bondage. Uh, Matthew said that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, upon fleeing to Egypt and then coming out of Egypt, is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. That prophet is the prophet Hosea. And that line comes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And in the midst of that prophecy, Hosea was referring to God's deliverance of his people, the nation of Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And and this event, chronicled in the book of Exodus, was the premier salvation event in the Old Testament. That God saved his people by delivering them from the physical oppression in Egypt, where they were held as slaves. And, and, and then through Moses, they were saved and brought out of Egypt, brought out of slavery, brought into a relationship with him where he dwelled among them. 
Not because of anything they did, not because they were special, not because they were well-behaved, but simply because he was their God, and they were his people. And by his covenant, he fulfilled his promise and delivered his people out of Egypt. And the reason why he is now associating Jesus with this event is because all people are held in bondage to sin. All people are held in spiritual oppression, in need of deliverance. And we know that, and we experience that in our lives. Again, when we see things that happen in the world, when, when sin comes and we are victims of sin, and people sin against us, and, and also, hauntingly, the way we sin against others. That we don't just experience and see it, but we partake in it. That we need deliverance, and that's why Jesus came. And that's why God sent him. And that's why God sent him as a refugee to Egypt to then be called out to identify with us even though he is not one of us so that he may deliver us. The fulfillment shows that man's sinful efforts can never thwart God's perfect promises. If there's one line you take a note on today, let it be that one, that man's sinful efforts will never thwart God's perfect promises and purposes. Because you ask the question, hey, what led this family to Egypt? You could say man's efforts through the wickedness of Herod to destroy Jesus, to take his life. But also, God's sovereign plan to connect his son Jesus to the plight of his people that he came to save. That's number one. And we see number two. Second fulfillment tells us that number two, God will dry the tears of his people. God will dry the tears of his people. So that second fulfillment reference comes from Matthew 2, verse 18. After the children of Bethlehem were killed, he writes, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. That prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And the context of that prophecy is that this is when God's people were taken into exile due to their own sin, due to their own inability to keep God's law, due to their own inability to listen to the repeated warnings of the prophets that God sent to them, they were overtaken now by Assyria and taken into exile. The temple was ransacked, and the first wave of exiles were brought to a city north of Jerusalem called Ramah. They were put in caravans there, separated from families and loved ones, and then scattered to different parts of the Babylonian kingdom. In exile. And Ramah is also where Rachel, Jacob's wife from the book of Genesis, was buried. And Jeremiah paints this picture of Rachel weeping as she sees her children walking by her grave, the people of Israel being taken now out of the promised land and headed to exile, weeping over the realities of families torn apart the unimaginable anguish they are experiencing, just like the families in Bethlehem experienced when Herod carried out his genocide. But as the New Testament authors often did, their reference to an Old Testament prophecy was not just to remind those reading of that one verse, but it's to bring them back to the context of verses that that prophecy was spoken into. So that was Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Now on the screen, I want you to read what Jeremiah 31, verses 16 and 17 say. Thus says the Lord, 
Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In the midst of the real sorrow with the real tears that stems from real suffering, God promises his people that they will come back. That this is not the end. That this suffering, while difficult to handle, will not have the final say. That God will bring his people back. That evil will not prevail. And there is a hope for the future. A future where he will dry the tears of his people. That fulfillment will be partially fulfilled with the return from exile 70 years later. But the ultimate fulfillment here, as with all Old Testament prophecy is that man's sinful efforts can never thwart God's perfect purposes. What did those tears of these mothers in Bethlehem mean? They came because of the death of their sons who did nothing wrong. Also, it was God's sovereign plan to connect the suffering of these families to the deliverance of his people through the life and death of his own son who did nothing wrong and who came to save his people from their sins and dry every tear. All right, we got one more. Third fulfillment. That God will be despised and rejected for our sake. God will be despised and rejected for our sake. This third fulfillment takes a little bit more work to unpack. Because if you look at the end of the passage again, after Joseph was warned not to return to Judea, he goes to Galilee, and then verse 23, the final verse of chapter 2, I'll read it again. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now the reason why Matthew does not directly quote a prophecy here, like he does the other two, is that you will not find that line anywhere in the Old Testament. In fact, Nazareth, or Nazarene, is not mentioned in the Old Testament. It was likely not even a town when the Old Testament was being written. But the general and bigger context of the New Testament helps us to shed some light on, why is Matthew then saying that here? Because Nazareth, as I um, mentioned earlier in the sermon, was a nothing town. Nazareth was full of nobodies, according to the Jews of the day. It was a small town in the hill country of Galilee, far removed from the region of Judea where Jerusalem, the temple, and the leading Jews of the the day were. It was associated with the heathen peoples, nobodies from nowhere. Which is why, in the Gospel of John, Jesus approached Philip and said, follow me. Do you remember this? Philip ran to his brother Nathaniel and said, we found him. The one the prophets have been talking about this whole time, it's Jesus of Nazareth. You remember what Nathaniel said? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So being from Nazareth was a place of being despised and rejected. The other connection is the, the uh, root Hebrew word for Nazareth is the word shoot. 
And it's, it's the reference to the idea that there's a uh, kind of a weed that comes out of a stump. So if you ever cut a tree in your property, we actually had one of our neighbors cut down two trees right uh, on the sidewalk there. And what's left there is a stump. And after you cut a tree, if you go back maybe a year later and nobody tends to it, you might get little weeds, little shoots coming out of the stump. And you would look past it and be like, man, how pathetic. This big tree is gone and now you just get this little weed sticking out, this little shoot connects you to Isaiah chapter 11. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah will continually prophesy about this coming Messiah, and then most clearly in Isaiah 53, Where Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. How pathetic. That was Nazareth. That was Jesus growing up in Nazarene. But man's sinful efforts can never thwart God's perfect promises and purposes. Why did Jesus grow up in Nazareth? Well, one, the brutal leader, the son of Herod of the day, made them, made Joseph bring his family to this northern region of Galilee where they would be off the radar. But God's sovereign hand was upon them to connect this Jesus, this king of the Jews, to the one who will be despised and rejected by this world. So he would be called the Nazarene, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and his roots shall bear fruit. This is weeping, and rejoicing. And admittedly, maybe not the Christmassy kind of passage that we want to hear four days before Christmas or five days before Christmas Eve. And yet it's the one we need. And maybe it's the most Christmassy passage of all when you think about it. Because it simultaneously shows how dark the world is, how broken it could be, while simultaneously unveiling God's sovereign plan to shine the light of Christ in order to redeem it. And so as we close, I imagine in sermons like this or stories like this that you're asking yourself as you hear, trying to locate yourself in the story. Where are you in this story? Perhaps the hardest part of this whole thing is that while we want to relate most to Jesus... The reality is, because of our sin, we more closely relate to Herod. And just like you cannot rejoice in this passage without first weeping, so too you cannot experience the saving grace of God and Jesus Christ without first weeping over the state of the world and the state of your own soul that is in need of deliverance. We too have a natural bent to destroy the king to deny the king, to ensure that we sit on the throne of our lives and nobody threatens it. We call the shots. We are in control. And we live in a world that tells you exactly that. You have to find meaning in yourself. But that's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to inspire us to be our best selves. He didn't come to uh, just encourage us to try our hardest and ensure that we'll be okay in the end. 
he came willingly to deliver us from bondage, to dry every tear from our eyes, and to be despised and rejected on our behalf. And in that truth, the enemy's sinful efforts can never thwart God's perfect purposes. Not then, and not now. At the end of his earthly ministry, Satan, through the work of sinful men, thought that he did what Herod couldn't. He killed Jesus. And Jesus was brought outside the gates of Jerusalem, despised and rejected, left alone to be crucified on a cross. But God raised Jesus from the dead showing that his death and resurrection was the primary reason he came and delivering a cosmic death blow to Satan. The cross contains both weeping and rejoicing. That he was born to die, to be raised again. And so he is the hope. He is the light that exposes the darkness that we feel, that we see, that we embody. He is the hope of the king. And today... Christmas is the story that just as he called Jesus out of Egypt, so too he's calling you out of bondage. I don't know where everybody stands with Jesus Christ in here this morning, but my plea to you is that it's time to come home. It's time to come up and rise and come out of Egypt. And I know you've been running this race on your own, And that you've been racing and you've been searching and trying to find and you're tired. And my plea to you is that it's time to come home. And this is the call of the sovereign hand of God, not just in history but on your life, that God's sovereign purposes will never fail. Charles Spurgeon once said, It is easier to restrain the sun from rising than to hold the redeemed of the Lord from being called. And just as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, so will you when you are called upon by the Holy Spirit. This is the story of weeping that leads to rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you even at times when it's hard to say thank you for certain texts in the Bible. We look upon you even in the midst of our own questions and our own hurt and our pain that we have seen others experience that perhaps we ourselves have experienced, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that it would not be by skirting around that suffering and weeping that we find you, but through the very lens of it. That, Lord, you know what it's like to lose a son. And yet, Lord, you are the only one that can declare victory over a world where sons die. And Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself in a meaningful way, Lord, that this whole season of Advent is pointing to your eternal Son who was born to die on our behalf, who was willingly despised and rejected for our sake. So Father, as we mourn the state of our own souls, Lord, let us at the same time see the beautiful grace that you open and free us into. And it's in your name, Lord, that we pray all these things. Amen. Please stand. As we sing together, O come, O come, Emmanuel.